The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. Maybe I'll take care of a little business now just because we always seem to run out of time at the end, especially those weeks we have small groups like we will tonight. So this is the last of these four classes, of course, we missed last week. And uh, then we start up again the first Monday in March, and it's a 12-week class. Remember, it's okay if you're going to be out of town for work or have family obligations, but uh, we'll be studying the five faculties, which in uh, certain schools in Theravada Buddhism is one of the main maps that people use, faith, energy, or effort, Mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. And really that dynamic, how they work together, how they can come into balance working together, really seen as this engine of awakening. And so practice in a way is to transform these tendencies of mind into powers. You know, that the faith energy has enough momentum it exists in our heart and our mind as a real <coughs> excuse me power that the mind can be dependent on can use same with energy and mindfulness and concentration samadhi and wisdom so that's what we'll be doing in the spring all the way to mid-may so sign up for that you can go ahead and sign up Gabe has it already up to for registration and uh, oh, and then just most of you know this, but the center operates on this really beautiful principle of dana, and uh, it does take some work. We actually have to not be on autopilot. That's really the work it requires. So, like when you walk into common ground, we walk in as sensitive human beings. We actually feel that this place is here because of people's generosity. We sense that, the room, the teachings. It all reminds us of this river of generosity or this great force of generosity that makes this place what it is. And we just want to let it in so it touches the heart. And hopefully then it's a cause for some happiness in our heart. Just to know that this, these teachings, this place, the community is a, offering because there's some love in motion, some goodness in motion. We let it touch our heart, and then naturally at some point, maybe not here, maybe some other place in your life, but there's going to be this natural upwelling of wanting to love back, to contribute, to support, to take care of. And so we have to practice being, being on the lookout for that and kind of clearing away the brush so that whatever that generous impulse is, it can express itself in a natural way that makes sense in our lives. And, and because we're going to be aware of it, we'll notice if we get real idealistic or whatever and give away too much, and that won't feel good. Or if we hold back because there's fear in the mind, well, that won't feel good either. So we're trying to find a way for gener these generous intentions, this movement of love and wanting to support and care and 
to let it move in a way that the aftertaste tastes good, feels good in the body and mind. And, you know, we learn a lot by making mistakes. But the point is not to do the receiving or the giving on autopilot because it's like avoiding the more challenging work of letting it become more organic and natural instead of, oh, I just give this amount and then I don't have to think about it. And it feels so good like not to have to be reflective about it, especially those of you in the Buddhist studies, you've been, most of you have been around for a while or have an established practice. It's really good to take this up, this practice of dana up, and then some other places in your life as well where you're just practicing waking up to the circle of giving and receiving in a relationship, in another community you're part of, and just see if it can be a real support for your practice and for just your well-being. This is what we mean by living in harmony. It's bringing a lot of integrity, a lot of respect to these circles of giving and receiving in our lives. And this we uproot a lot of the causes for suffering just in this practice of dana in different places in our lives. Any questions about that before we go on? So as you can imagine, taking one night in a relatively short night because we'll have small groups to talk about equanimity. In a way, equanimity is the flavor of awakening of Nibbana. I mean, from an ordinary conventional mind that we operate with most of the time, the flavor, understanding the normal, actual, available flavor of equanimity gives us a sense of what awakening is about. And I thought maybe I'd give you the reflection for the small groups now, so as I continue to talk, you can kind of be also reflecting. Uh, thanks to Jiang Su, we were able to send out the chapter from Sharon Salzberg's wonderful book on loving-kindness, The Revolutionary Art of Happiness. And I think it's one of her better chapters in that book, and I think the book is great. I, I really recommend people who are into this style of Buddhist practice. It's, it's really a, almost an essential text for the practice. But she, maybe I'll just read a few lines here. This is from that chapter, page 138. In six months, even in one day or one hour, we can experience so many extremes of pleasure and pain. The question is, how can a human heart, my heart or your heart, absorb the continual, unremitting contrasts of this life without feeling shattered and thinking that we cannot bear it, battered by changes. The heart-mind can become brittle, rigid. It can wither and shrink. The Buddha said that our heart can wilt as a flower does when it's been out in the sun too long. Have you ever encountered this feeling? How can we live with such vicissitudes? Or in other places they're called the eight worldly winds. How can we hold them with some sense of wholeness, coherence, harmony, can we actually experience freedom in the midst of all these immense changes as they roll through our lives over and over again? Can we actually be happy 
and this continuum, this continuous arising and passing away. So we want to rethink equanimity because we have a lot of not quite useful programming around the word equanimity. Thinking of it in terms of some indifference or some having some distance. And uh, so it's like I've been really, especially today, reflecting on the talk tonight. You know, reconfiguring what dispassion, what equanimity, sensing it, imagining it as a very enlivened state of uh, being, of a way of being that's uh, alive and exposed and enlivened because of the exposure. And, and basically, whatever is real, whatever's here and now in the body, mind, internally, externally, is sort of fuel for that enlivening quality of equanimity, that radiant, healthy, loving quality of equanimity. So like that word dispassion on purpose, using it because it can have a sense of coolness when we're dispassionate and uh, nothing touches me, like a superhero type that is above and beyond lonely in my superhumanness, you know, my with my superpowers of dispassion, uh, rising above it all. But that's why, like in the guided sit, I, I just mentioned that even seeming to fail at being equanimous, like to be equanimous with that, or being really confused, like what is it? And being, like including, like, yeah, that too, that. Because it's that emotion, that understanding that first and foremost isn't looking for anything from the moment, isn't looking like to be successful at equanimity practice, isn't trying to get something. It's the kind of heart that just is including and in a sense normalizing, like of course, Of course it's like this, because sometimes it is like this. Like this moment is like this. And the the key to get some momentum is to realize that that including, that inclusivity and that normalizing, that sometimes it's like this. Of course sometimes it's like this, because it's like this now. right? That that's very enlivening, because to do that including, the mind is dropping all of my habits, all the mind's habits of thinking the moment should be some other way or thinking that the moment should be delivering something to me. Right? We're sort of jettisoning the tendency to want to feed on the moment or be fed by the conditions of the moment. And instead, the heart is feeding on this way of being. It's a kind of love, right? This is why it's so cool that something so cool as equanimity is one of the qualities of love. Because we feel that expansive quality knowing, sensing that I don't need, I can just include. Like, that's how I take care of my needs. Not by getting something, under even understanding something, or holding to anything whatsoever, but by just including 
and acknowledging and normalizing and understanding, oh yeah, things are the way that they are. I love this little tune that Michelle McDonald, uh, one of my teachers, a long-time IMS teacher, lives in Hawaii. Uh, when she was in Burma practicing, she just used this tune in her mind a lot, and I sing it to myself from time to time. I, I didn't sing it, but I, I gave most of the lines. I mean, you, I can't remember exactly what lines she used and didn't use, but I'll use. Uh, different pronouns, may I, may you, may we, right? So those three especially. May I be happy and peaceful and may I know things are just as they are. And you could do may you, may we be happy and peaceful and may we know things are just as they are. So, that wish, may we be happy and peaceful, it's a happiness and a peace that is in alignment, that's normalizing, that's integrating, that's including things are just as they are now. That the happiness and peace arises precisely because the heart is including, normalizing, acknowledging, not because the heart is chasing its likes and dislikes. And that's a way to understand equanimity is the happiness, the love, and the peace of not getting pushed around by our likes and dislikes. But there's still likes and dislikes, but the mind isn't in allegiance with the likes and dislikes in the mind. You know, I haven't forgotten my preferences I was sort of looking forward to being home tonight when my partner's feeling healthy and I'm going to do some things tonight. And and uh, so, you know, just I noticed that sort of leaning forward, like, oh, it would be nice when this is over. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and then instead of like, oh, no, you got to be a grown-up and do your job or whatever, you know, but just to sort of include that like to have equanimity with that so-called being imperfect, you know, being attached or being greedy or, uh, you know, wanting something to happen. So I thought for the small groups, you know, you could look through your life in places where the mind feels very identified, very attached to likes and dislikes, really, in a sense, is orienting around our likes and dislikes in order to take care of myself, in order to be safe. So we trust that orientation like my likes and dislikes are my guideposts for safety, for happiness. And places, moments at least in your life, places maybe where you more regularly have some space you're not orienting around likes and dislikes. You have kind of this wise, spacious, and oh yeah, those are likes and dislikes, but they're not relevant. Like going beyond them, not being pushed around by them is what the moment is about. Where in our life 
Are we not driven by likes and dislikes? Or as Sharon says in that part, those paragraphs, I read about you know, the enormity of change and unpredictability and uncertainty, how many high moments we have today, how many low moments. You know, we can feel relatively happy and then the news comes on or, you know, something comes is brought to mind. And then we can, you know, can bring up so much insecurity or so much rage or so much I don't want to be here. And then something else happens and we feel really like beautiful, see a cardinal, I mean something simple and and so where in our life is is that enormity of change the cause for it a beautiful, peaceful, radiant, enlivened equanimity, the love of equanimity, the grace of equanimity, the powerful patience, constancy of equanimity, really trusting this great, swirling, imperfect, terrible world, beautiful world. Like that it's a, be- it's a thing of beauty for the heart to be right in the middle of it, this heart, to be right in the middle of it and not uh, pathologizing nature. Because it's so, we feel so, and we're encouraged. We encourage each other, don't we, to pathologize the world. I mean, it's like, (laughs) you know, it's like uh, we get points. Like in terms of our conversations with each other, like who can sort of do some riff about how bad the world is? Or how bad somebody in the world is. And, you know, there's definitely a place for a discriminating wisdom that sort of points to particular causes and conditions that are causing harm and people are really suffering. But there's also a way of, and, and in terms of actually participating in the world, we're totally dependent on this place of equanimity. If we really want to contribute, to really address suffering, we require, like that, addressing suffering skillfully requires being close. And there's really no closeness without equanimity. Especially in the confusing and ambiguous uncertain parts of life. We really need that equanimity. So what gets in the way of equanimity? What belief systems get in the way of equanimity? Like one common thing to look at in terms of, for example, your small group sharing is how we don't feel we're respecting the very real suffering if we have that balanced, spacious equanimity. You know, like if we, in moments in our day, maybe now, experience some real honest peace, even though the world is really 
imperfect and people are really suffering, being oppressed in different ways, maybe we ourselves in our own particular way, that it can feel like an, uh, uh, an insult to the patterns of suffering to have the peace, the stability, the radiance of equanimity. You know, it's like part of the mind want to grab us, grab ourselves by the, you know, the shirt and say, there's suffering. Like that bumper sticker, forget exactly how it goes, but it, you know, if you're not outraged, you're not paying attention or something like that. And it's really a question about, it's like when we are willing to be sensitive, willing to be intimate, willing to see things, the joys, I think it's from the Taoist tradition where they say the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows, maybe the Tao Te Ching, I forget, I'm not certain, but, but when we can receive that, the 10,000 joys and sorrows, there's, there's something beautiful about not needing to shut any doors or windows to that. So what is wrong? What would be inappropriate about appreciating how the heart, how the mind, how this wisdom of equanimity, this love of equanimity has this capacity to let in the joys and sorrows? So you might uh, like you might remember in terms of small group sharing a particular time you were with a friend that was in a really difficult place, but you felt really balanced being with them. And uh, and then like maybe because of that balance of equanimity, that presence of equanimity, the mind was really nimble in like how you were able to show up for them, creative in ways that you surprised you maybe like how you were able to support them in ways that seemed a little out of the box but precisely because you weren't afraid of their suffering weren't getting pushed away weren't impatient that you were able to sort of because of the equanimity be able to be more skillful and also it'd be very interesting not always to do it with the difficult but equanimity with really beautiful moments in your life, places where things were just great, but the mind wasn't sort of building some dependence. You know, I was just looking at Steve, and he's got a couple kids, and, you know, there are moments in families where it's really harmonious and delightful, and, you know, with Win and me, it's, you know, the cat is in a good mood, and... <laughs> willing to interact with us and put up with us, our emotional needs. And and it's just like this nice vibe in the family. And, uh, and then equanimity is like noticing that part of the mind that wants it to last, always wants it to be this way, but not confused by, oh, of course, you want, you know, the mind wants to build... But because it sees it, it doesn't, you know, take the bait. It just stays in that place of wisdom and love, of equanimity that knows that 
Change is relentless. You know, the enormity of uncertainty and change, it's like this now, but it will be different. It will change. And that being okay with how fluid, how uncertain, how ephemeral this nice moment is, this beautiful moment, it just makes, it just is part of the blossoming of the heart in that moment, that expansive quality of equanimity and love. Precisely because the mind has decided I don't need to hold on. Does it make sense to hold on, to want it to last? We learn a lot about equanimity uh, just in those places in your life that are, there aren't any, everything's the way you want it to be. Right? then that's sort of a more worldly experience of equanimity. It's there not because necessarily there's a lot of wisdom in the mind, but because temporarily at least we have everything we want or we can imagine wanting. So then the mind can be impartial, it can be balanced, it can be content, it can be expansive because it's so nice. It's just what I wanted. It's great. This is like a good sit is a little bit like that. When the mind retreats from sense experience, the mind turns into itself and unifies, collects, gathers joy because of the non-disturbance, the non-distraction of the mind, the heart. And there's this inner happiness, this bliss, rapture, ease, peace. And then the deeper states of that concentrated mind is characterized by equanimity. But this equanimity is like what I was just talking about. It's a worldly equanimity, you could say, in the sense that it is arising because there's nothing agitating the mind. It's because the mind is retreated from the messiness and uncertainty and the changingness of things. Right, So it feels really calm and willing to say, I don't need things to be different. You know, I'm content. Because the flow is, you know, it's temporary, but the flow is like nice, 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 nice. So we're not afraid of the flow because it's just a flow of niceness. So, but but we can, wisdom can go, Yeah, the nice is nice, but the not being the one who has to control, to chase likes and dislikes, that's even nicer than the niceness of the moment. So basically, in the more quiet, peaceful places, whether it's a formal sitting time or just some time when you've got your favorite beverage and you're in your favorite comfortable chair and you have your favorite entertainment and your favorite friends and you're favorite four-legged beast and you know everything's just right your favorite sweater on favorite temperature or you're in a set but the important thing then is to highlight the equanimity the impartiality the mind that is has abandoned needing things to be other or needing to hold right so it's really a different relationship with this desire So the mind isn't 
orienting around the desire. That's what I meant by likes and dislikes. Because that, the <coughs> activity of desire, desire is just nature too. So we don't want to pathologize the world and we don't want to pathologize desire. Because it's just nature to desire. But we don't want to build a sense of self around desire. We don't want to identify, personalize desire because that causes suffering. So when we're in that equanimous place, even though it's dependent on the conditions being just right, we can notice the mind that's not identified with desire. We can notice the equanimity the peace of equanimity. And we can basically cultivate a taste for that release. Because that helps us bring it into the other places in our life where things aren't perfect, where we see the ugliness, the meanness, we see the uncertainty, we see the vulnerability and insecurity. And we know that, we know more honestly that Everything comes and goes, and, and we can't govern that process of change. And it, you see, it's a direct affront because so much of the way we've operated in the world is by using desire. Kind of, it creates the structure, the frame for how I operate in the world. Like I was mentioning earlier, like me getting home to do what I want to do. And uh, that sort of dangling carrot makes it tolerable to sort of, but it's all stressful, the sort of using likes and dislikes to motivate us to animate our lives. So when we train the mind to notice equanimity, notice the love, the emotion of equanimity, and basically to develop a deep sense of trust in it. Then we kind of look for, like, as I mentioned in this for your small groups, like well, what's in the way of equanimity? What attitude, what understanding, what attachment is in the way of equanimity? What, do, what does my heart need to abandon in order for equanimity to arise? The beautiful enlivened state of equanimity to arise? What fixed view in this moment needs to be loosened for equanimity? Like, how do we know that right now it's not okay? Like, why, why are we in the habit of not being fully released right now? What is the understanding there in the mind that compels the body and mind to be tight in some way. You know how, you know, it's subtle, of course, but how there is an arrogant certainty that this isn't it. This isn't meant to be peaceful or free. There's got to be more, you know? It's like, and but that's exactly the shield or the prison that we're in is the thought it's not here. There's got to be more. 
life needs more meaning than this. This can't be it. Is this it? Could this be? No, this isn't it. I'm half-baked at best. You know, I got a lot of despicable habit energies that I don't want to share with you. <laughs> you know, or, you know, I'm really frightened and anxious a lot of the time. I got to work through that stuff. So we have this, these structures where the mind identified with desires and we're all bound up in that, living that out. And equanimity is a real affront. It's a real challenge to all of that. That's why the best way to begin is in these more simple places in our life, like a good sit or really peaceful place, really safe place that maybe we get to be in every once in a while. And then to remember, to notice. Oh, this is the mind that doesn't need things to be other than the way they are. Is this equanimity? And to kind of deconstruct so that your attention, wisdom is highlighting that impartiality, that beautiful balance, that kind of patience with the conditions that are there. Of course, because the conditions are nice, but still that way of being is that way of being even though the cause for that way of being is because the conditions are really nice. But the mind learns something like that the mind can relate this way, that the mind can be free of attachment to desire. And and that's an expansive, enlivened way of being. And we can take it on the road. I'll just read, uh, I'll send out um, as an ending to this class an article that I meant to send earlier. It's called The Buddha's Smile, Cultivating Equanimity by Andy Olensky, this wonderful teacher and scholar. And he he makes, it's just a short two-page article, but he does a really good job of making this point I've made tonight about to revision equanimity as a very enlivened, state of mind, state of the heart, as opposed to a passive, cool, distant, indifferent state. So does that give you enough to go on for the small groups? Places in your life where you felt that kind of radiant, calm, constancy, peace of equanimity, not pushed around by desire. There may be desires, but the mind is relaxing in the non-attachment, in the radiant acceptance of conditions, allowing nature to be nature. And then, uh, and then what gets in the way, and especially it'd be interesting, again, to where in places that are more challenging have you seen that equanimity? Because sometimes precisely because times are overwhelming or really out-of-the-box, intense, that wisdom just sort of kicks in. And and later, in hindsight, wow, that was amazing. That's what the mind thinks. Like, how much balance, how much equanimity. I thought I would have freaked out, but I didn't. The mind was really balanced, really peaceful, really clear, 
really responsive. Because it's good to then dissect that, deconstruct it like, what was the understanding? What were the causes that allowed that natural equanimity to be there? That's a good thing to talk about. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.